When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's been a while since we were here. There was no proper last week. I was down in Colorado on vacation with my family, so we missed talking about UFC London. Uh, We did a bit of a preview last Monday that we tape delayed for UFC 277, but of course by now... That pay-per-view has gone down on Saturday down there in Dallas, Texas at the Americans Air- American Airlines Center. Tons of stoppages, just a, a, a buffet of stoppages over there at UFC 277. What we thought we would do this week is, uh, since we have two weeks worth of listener mail stored up since we didn't record a proper last week, we thought we would do all questions considered, just kind of run through as many of these listener mail questions as we can that we got during the last couple weeks, most of which will take us through the pertinent action from UFC 277. We might check in a little bit on uh, the happenings of UFC London if we have time at the end of the show and some other odds and ends, but uh, we we expect to spend the bulk of our time this week breaking down stuff that happened at UFC 277 over the weekend. How you doing? I haven't talked to you for a while since I've been gone. What did I miss? Well, I mean, you missed that bloke Tom Aspinall blowing out his leg. I mean, I, you know, I was unmoored, Jed. I had all these feelings, complicated, difficult feelings, after, you know, all 16 seconds or whatever it was of Tom Aspinall and Curtis Blades. And, and where were you? You know, I had no one to turn to, no one to help me probably, process these feelings. I was probably eating a s'more at that exact second. I was probably sitting around a campfire, toasting a marshmallow, eating a s'more, drinking a, a, a high alcohol content beer. I heard that you you maybe took a walk on the wild side as far as <laughs> s'mores are concerned. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening s'mores-wise at this family gathering. Some of my wife's family uh, was there, and they were talking up the... Uh, the wonder of making a s'more, but putting a Reese's peanut butter cup on there instead of uh, set a couple squares of chocolate. So I was like, hey, I'm a trisexual, you know, I'll try anything once. So I go ahead, uh, I toast the marshmallow, I put it on the uh, on the graham cracker with the uh, with the Reese's peanut butter cup. And I got to be honest, it was delicious, but it also felt wrong. It yeah. felt like I it felt like I was eating like uh, another human being or something like I discovered human flesh tasted great. You know, you can imagine the complicated feelings that that would dredge up in your soul. And that's kind of how I felt because it was really good. I only wanted to eat one because it was, uh, it was a, a real, a sugar bomb straight to the, straight to the dome. But, uh, but yeah, didn't just, it felt unnatural. It felt like I was 
treading on the razor's edge between genius and madness. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. It sounds to me like uh, you're trying to fuck around and fly too close to the sun, my man. Yeah, no, I'm it was concerned. some Icarus shit uh, for sure. And then, of course, I put that on Twitter. And you know how Twitter be. Yep. Uh, a bunch of people replying immediately just being like, if you think that's wild, uh, try using a couple of Costco chocolate chip cookies instead of graham crackers. Uh, try using Oreo cookies. And people were coming out of the woodwork with their uh, with their s'mores in inventions. Yeah. And I was hey, just hey like, why don't we sprinkle a little crack cocaine on there, too? I bet that would be different. I bet that'd be yeah. something. So, uh, yeah, it was a wild time. The people can tell just from this description. It was a wild time down there in Colorado with the in-laws. Chad starts fucking around with the s'mores recipe, and the next thing you know, he's hooked on fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. Cops are passing out just from being in my general vicinity. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's just get into it. We're going to spend this hour and change this week talking about uh, taking this listener mail. Thanks to everybody who went over there to co-main event. Dot com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That's how you get in touch with the co-main event podcast. We're going to start here with our guy, Cheesy P. Cheesy P wrote in to say, keeping it short and sweet, not supposed to be on my phone in jail, especially after 8 p.m. But in terms of action-packed goodness, how would you rate UFC 277 against any card so far this year? Now, my question is, how did, Wait, how did Cheesy you P start with? You, you want to start with Cheesy P writing to us from lockdown? Well, how did Cheesy P view the pay-per-view from from inside, from in the slammer, in the sneezer? How do you watch it? Or he or him or her? I mean, doesn't necessarily say Cheesy P did watch it. Cheesy P, maybe. That's what Cheesy P is trying to get this fixed because couldn't watch it. Was in the sneezer. Was in the hooskow. And yeah. uh, wants to know how we rate it. Because Cheesy P, for uh, you know crimes against the state or whatever, unable to view it. I'm certain it's it's crimes against the state. Uh, maybe crimes against humanity. Maybe Cheesy P uh, made a s'more with a uh, with a Twinkie on the inside and a couple of donuts as, yeah, the, as the outside portion. They'll give you a hard time for that. Uh, you know, I was thinking how I went into UFC London being like, this is a this looks like a banger of a fight night card, especially for for what we expect of fight nights. You know, gonna be on Saturday afternoon. I'm looking forward to this one. Sat through the whole thing and felt like, mm, I didn't quite get as much bangerness as I was hoping for and I was expecting. And then this one, which wasn't exactly a, one of the more hyped pay-per-views, eh, you know, maybe for the heads a little bit, because yeah. we had some some good stuff here on the, the main card, but it wasn't the kind of thing where everybody was like, fucking cancel your wedding and order UFC 270s. It wasn't quite at that level. And it ended up, especially the main card, being really interesting. A lot of interesting stuff going on, fun fights there. Uh, and one where I was like, okay, I, I was glad that I that I made time for this one. It delivered more than I expected. Yeah, I'm probably not the uh, end-all, beat-all source on this issue since I had to catch up with UFC 277 after the fact. But, uh, I, you know, it's a fun little pay-per-view, I thought, after I after I had watched the whole thing. It was, it's a... Uh, you know, four stoppages and or yeah, four stoppages and five fights on the main card. That's that's nothing to write home about. I didn't think that it was one for the ages. I didn't think that it was a uh, you know a classic all timer UFC pay per view. But I thought it was a I thought it was a fun one. I thought it was a you know delivered a bunch of uh, a bunch of pleasing action. And so uh, I would I would rate it a solid like a minus sort of pay per view. I thought it was I thought it was good. Well, anytime the handsomest man in MMA, Drew Dober, goes out there and gets a stoppage victory. Yeah. You know that's a good night for me. You know that I'm I'm already hyped at that point. Everything else, I'm just playing with house money. 
after that because yeah and we'll we'll talk about drew dober coming up in a little bit but uh just a body shot so hard that it made rafael alves feel more tired than he'd ever been in his life <laughs> he just immediately had to lay down take a rest it'll so happen that's, to that's, you that's a tough body shot a big night for body shots all the way yeah. around once you take in the whole uh the whole the vista. All right, let's let's start here. We'll talk a little bit about Nunes versus Pena. We got this one from Darlene, who wrote, "Is it time for Amanda Nunes to retire on top? Not because she's losing skill, but because she has nothing left to prove in the sport. She was already the goat before losing the belt. So to see her come back with a fire and have a war to regain her title with some legend status shit. I also think it would be a good time for her to retire because who else is left for her to fight? I don't think there is a contender who presents a meaningful enough challenge to somehow elevate Nunes higher than she already is. Maybe Bullet Valentina, but that's a, a fight that neither uh, fighter seems interested in. And I don't think it's a good move for women's MMA to have the two best champs fight each other because someone has to lose. Also retiring as, as double champ seems like a badass boss move to me, especially for women's MMA to my knowledge. There's never been a man who has done it. Uh, Amanda Nunes obviously recaptures the women's bantamweight title over the weekend with a dominant five round performance over Juliana Pena. Ben, uh, she came back and avenged that loss that she had last year at UFC 269, the only loss on her record since 2014. Uh, she has defeated a who's who, a veritable who's who in women's MMA. Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, Shevchenko, Chris Cyborg, Holly Holm, uh, Megan Anderson, and now Juliana Pena to, uh, to regain the title. She is uh, 34 years old, married, has a child, what do you think? What do you make of this? Is it would this be a good time for Amanda Nunes to call it quits? It doesn't seem like she's really considering it. You know, you heard her talk a little bit after this one about how she wanted some time off to spend with her family. And you can understand that that you came out of the first Pena fight. You had to do the whole ultimate fighter thing. You'd get turn around, have the rematch, go five hard rounds in that one. And uh, you know, when you've got a young child at home, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff that you're dealing with on top of everything else. And so uh, I, I totally get her saying that she wants a little bit of time, but it didn't sound like anything remotely close to her thinking about. And, you know, maybe I'm thinking about stepping away. Like she could honestly just keep holding it down for another two or three years. That's not hard to imagine at all in that yeah. division. So yeah. she's still super good. She's really damn good. I, I mean, I know we... We tell ourselves, I think, sometimes that we would like that we would like to see somebody step away on top. But then when it does happen, like Habib, we freak the fuck out. We don't know what to do with that shit. Remember that? Like nobody could really process it even. Everybody was like, ah, oh, he's not really retired. Dana White keep taking him out to dinner. He's he gonna come back. All the you know, we're we're fantasy matchmaking him against GSP and all kinds of other stuff. And it's just like we tell ourselves we hate it when they stay too long when we have to watch them in a sad decline and watch them get beat up in fights that they would have easily dominated five years earlier. And that we, we want somebody to know when it's time to know when they're at the peak of their powers and step away. And I don't know if we actually do like that that much. I think honestly, if, if Amanda Nunes were to say, you know what? I have climbed every mountaintop. Uh, I'm kind of done with this now. I've made enough money. I'm walking away. I think the response would actually be kind of sadly underwhelming. I think the UFC, I think, would treat her like Triple C and be like, well, okay, thanks. Thanks for coming. 
who can we get to fight for this belt next weekend? You know, yeah. like I don't, I, and I think that a lot of the fans, even though, like, when you consider what Amanda Nunes has actually done, how good she is as a fighter, and in her dominance uh, across two divisions there, it seems crazy to me that she is not a bigger deal. And we'll kind of remind ourselves every once in a while, like, oh, she's the GOAT. And we accept that. Like, like it's one of the only GOAT conversations that we don't have a bitter argument about. We just go, okay, yeah, Amanda Nunes is the WMMA GOAT. And yet, it just still feels like we don't really make that big a deal about Amanda Nunes. At least commensurate with her accomplishments. Yeah, and like honestly, that was sort of my takeaway from this fight, is that we probably don't appreciate her as much as we should. Because I agree wholeheartedly uh, with Darlene's assertion here that this was, in fact, some legend status shit for Amanda Nunes to come back in the wake of that loss to Juliana Pena, surprising, shocking loss, and then essentially just beat the brakes off her in the rematch uh, in a way that seemed to me like there were stylistic changes, obviously, that Amanda Nunes made coming into this fight. She did some things differently, switched it up on Juliana Pena and found some success through those things. But it seemed even more just kind of like a mindset, preparation, and maybe health uh, improvement for Amanda Nunes headed into this fight. Like you could tell that she came in to this 25 minutes of fighting totally and completely convinced that she was the better fighter Yeah, and that she was just going to destroy Juliana Pena uh, and did it. And frankly, the style that she fought with throughout much of this thing, this like patient kind of stalking style that is effective for her because she hits so damn hard I thought was kind of like a masterstroke just to see her fight in that way. And that highlight that has been on social media this week that everybody has seen where Juliana Pena runs forward, throwing them bungalows and Amanda Nunes gets out of the way of most of the punches and then just stops and just drops her yeah, uh, with a, right, a counter right hand. Just a, amazing stuff. It was legend status shit. But in, in terms of like her deciding to walk away, I wonder if this is another one of those things where we as fans and spectators from the outside looking in think about this differently than fighters do. That like we look at this and think, oh, this for legacy, this would be the perfect time for her to walk away. She's done everything she could do. She's the double champ. She's the undisputed goat. Now would be a great time uh, for her to, to cash it in and go out on top. Amanda Nunes may very well look at this thing and say, hey, man, maybe you should just keep paying me money and I'll beat up Ketlin Vieira. Yeah. And you could keep paying me money. I'll beat up Irene Aldana or Yana Kunitskaya. Send me, you know what? Send me Raquel Pennington. Pay me some money for that one. And, uh, and we'll just keep this thing rolling. I think that it's, it's a little bit more pragmatic sometimes for some of these fighters. Not that they don't care about legacy because they do, but just because, uh, maybe Amanda Nunes thinks like, well, I, I handled all the toughest challenges now. Maybe I'll just uh, get paid some money for for beating up everybody who's left, who's left over at the party. Well, yeah, and this is where you were trying to get. This is where everybody's trying to get, right? You're a dominant champion holding it down, and she's 34 years old. This was, this is like, she's living the career goal, and we want to be like, okay, enough now? Like, what are you going to do? You you don't exactly have Conor McGregor to yacht money, you know? She's doing well, I'm sure, but... You got a lot of life ahead of you. Trying, you got a child to raise. You got and support all that stuff. I can see how you'd be like, I'm gonna keep doing this until something tells me that it's a bad idea. And when I am beating the shit out of people and getting paid good money to do it, it's probably a pretty good idea still. This question came to us uh, from KSB over on Patreon. He said, "Is it me 
Or did the former champion striking look super unprofessional? I'm no expert, but she charged forward, winging punches, looking more like a video from bum fights than a UFC championship oh, match. Oh, come on. Come that's, on. That's a, that's a little tough. Uh, I understand that she felt she had limited ways to win, uh, but is running forward, overextending yourself, uh, throwing punches really UFC championship caliber? What am I missing here? Uh, Juliana Pena did, I mean, it's. I feel like it's too, saying that she looked like she was in bum fights is is is... That's that's rough. That's a rough criticism. Uh, and it also feels to me a little bit too harsh to say that she got exposed. But that's kind of what I want to say. Like, that's too much of a strong word. But like, we conclusively found out that she is not as good as Amanda Nunes, which is OK to not be that as good as Amanda Nunes, because nobody else is either in the world. Uh, but the, like the takeaway from this thing was that there was some shit going on in that first fight that caused an adverse outcome for Amanda Nunes, and then she cleaned it up and came back, and when you fought the actual damn lioness, you got your ass beat. Uh, now, that's... I, I don't want to talk too much shit about Juliana Pena, though, because she's she's really good. She's a good fighter. She got to this level. She won the championship. She's dangerous on the ground. Amanda Nunes didn't really want any part of her down there, despite the fact that she is also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Uh, she just got beat in the striking game by Amanda Nunes, as would any mortal women's bantamweight in the world, I think. I mean... I think one of the reasons why maybe her striking did not look great in that one is, like, as this question kind of alludes to, that, um, you know, she had limited ways in which she could win, KSB notes. And I think that part of what she told herself was, hey, you know how I won that first fight and how I'm going to win the second fight? Is taking it to her, getting yeah. right up in her face, yeah. uh, pushing, pushing the pace on her, uh, t- wearing her out as much mentally as physically by just getting right up in there. And I think especially early on when she was getting clipped with some of those punches, her first reaction is you got to just get up and and make her do it again. Make her keep having to deal with you. Don't back off because then you're, you're playing into her hands. And I can see why she would think that and why she would feel Mm -hmm. like that was part of the success in the first fight. But it also seemed like you could just notice a different approach from Amanda Nunes in this one right away. Like in the first round, she just fought. She fought this one like, okay, we're we're gonna be here for five rounds. She didn't fight this one like, you're a, a dead woman walking, and I just gotta let you know. Which is how she, I think, had just kind of gotten into a certain mode when she was dominating all those fights of thinking, all right, I'm gonna knock all these these people out it won't even be that difficult and so then if somebody's still standing there and you're loading up on big punches and they're just steadily jabbing you and wearing you down the next thing you know you're kind of exhausted because uh, that takes a lot out of you and this one she did she had a completely different approach and it was a smart approach especially she starts dropping her in that second round you know it was kind of it's a little bit uh almost comic how she keeps landing that right hook right she moves in that southpaw stance she keeps landing that right hook every time juliana pena steps into range of it and Dropped her like three times in the second round alone, just with that punch, pretty much. And you could see Juliana Pena, to her credit, she'd get up and act like nothing happened. You know, yeah. 20 seconds later, she's standing there as if she did not just get dropped. And But then she would just kind of do the same thing again. Like she, she, You could tell that she was telling herself, you got to be the aggressor. you got to be the one going forward. But Amanda Nunes was so calm and patient, she wasn't even freaking out when she had those opportunities to finish. You were thinking, okay, this is where she could pour it on her. And she's like, nope, get up and I'll hit you with another one of these right hooks. And yeah. I, I already know that you don't know how to handle it, that you don't have an answer for it. And that was a, a very different and a smart approach by her. And I think that you saw 
Juliana Pena just get a little reckless trying to make something happen. And then you got to give Juliana Pena a lot of credit for the toughness in that one, just because a lot of people are not still coming forward that hard, trying shit, coming up with like pretty close to getting a couple submissions off your back. Like she's tough as all hell. A lot of other people find a way out of that fight once they start getting beat up and she kept coming after her. But I also think that it was the limited ways to win that, that made her look a little bit like she's just sort of flailing at times. Yeah. Sort of in that vein, we got this question from the God of drill himself. Well, okay. Uh, who writes, do we think that Mike Beltran made up for his Carmouche Bellator title early stoppage by allowing the fight to continue in Nunes, Nunes Pena 2? Especially when you factor in the Lewis Sergey stoppage, Beltran saved us from controversy, which was kind of tough considering that beating. Now, we talk a lot about, you know, early or and or late stoppages in, the, in MMA. Uh, we just had the fight from a couple of weeks ago where uh, you could have had a stoppage and then uh, there was a, a come from behind victory. Uh, that was created some controversy. What about the case like this, where it's just sort of a 25 minute prolonged beating where as the fight goes on, Juliana Pena is wearing it on her face more and more and more, but she's not giving up. Uh, I don't know that she's ever in a real spot where it seemed like she was out, but she's not winning and she's probably not going to come back and win. Uh, do we give Mike Beltran either any credit or criticism for just sort of standing by allowing this thing to go the distance? Yeah, I mean, I, there wasn't one big moment where you're going, oh, God, you must stop this. Like yeah. the, the punishment is unrelenting and Pena is not even in the fight anymore. And somebody please, for the love of, of all that is holy, human mercy, stop it. There wasn't one of those moments. It was just a steady, prolonged one-sided dominance. And there were moments certainly where she's clearly hurting Juliana Pena. She's cutting rope. But Pena was fighting back. She was doing everything she could. She was showing that she was still in that fight. She didn't quit. And I think a lot of times you'll see in situations like that, somebody, you know, they're starting to take some punishment. They sort of roll over, cover up. And that's sort of the same as telling the referee, get in here. I'm done with this. Um, Even if you don't really want to say it yourself. And she never did that. She was always looking for what she had that she could maybe try to turn this thing around. Uh, and so like, there wasn't one moment where you're going, he should have stopped it right there. It was more just like when you step back and look at it in the aggregate, you go, well, damn, that was an <laughs> ass kicking. All right. We got a couple questions here about Brandon Moreno's win over Kai Car of France in the interim flyweight title fight, which was the co-main event of this pay-per-view was third round TKO after a nasty body kick and then uh, followed that up with punches. Here's a question from Bapton Brunch, who writes, can you make a case that Davison Figueredo came out of Saturday night as the under-the-radar winner? He squashed the long-standing beef between Moreno, was able to watch his next opponent take on, t- neck take on more damage, and the fact his stock is heightened considering that he's been the only one to come out victorious over Moreno, arguably two out of three times, in his recent stretch. Oh, uh, and fuck Dana White, that in-cage moment was wholesome, not disrespectful. Yeah. Now, this this in-cage moment I thought was delightful because it seemed like, and I, it seemed like Davison Figueredo thought, okay, it's on. We're going up in here to, to talk that junk. We're going to get in each other's faces and jaw, and I'm bringing the belt in there and hold it up over my head. And then Brandon Moreno, who is a true delight. Yes. 
cuts the faciest baby face promo you've ever seen in the in your life talking about how he's here to be a a role model for his daughter watching at home mm-hmm. he doesn't hate davidson figueredo he forgives him and if he has done anything to offend or disrespect davidson figueredo he hopes that davy figs can find it in his heart to forgive him as well which was i mean this guy we I mean, this is a guy we don't deserve in this sport frankly uh and then it turned into like a a, a bro fest out there it's like we respect each other slapping five we're still gonna do the damn thing maybe in december who knows but it just like it took a turn it took an unexpected turn i thought we were gonna do uh like the whole in the cage kind of muscle up on each other who's the alpha male kind of thing and and as it turned out we're all just bros we're all just bros in there yeah you know I can understand why, from Dana White's perspective and from being maybe a little risk-averse in this situation, you would think about it and go, well, there's a whole lot of ways for one of these post-fight confrontation in the cage moments to go wrong. You know, we've seen that before. And you don't really want to be the person who gave the green light to something like that. Because afterwards, people go, well, what would you expect? You get two guys who both got a belt and both think they're the champion in there. uh, that They might flip out on each other. And... There's probably no way he thought, well, actually, what you're going to get is a very heartwarming, endearing, some some Rocky Four ass, if I can change and you can change, everybody can change shit, which is what we got. And it was awesome. But I can understand why somebody in Dana White's position would not expect that that's where this is going, just experience wise. And yet, you're right. Like it, It's a great moment because I think maybe one of the differences here is having these two guys who at this point know each other pretty damn well have spent a lot of time in the cage together and a lot of time thinking about and preparing for one another, that even if they, they might not like each other or might have had some moments where they they'd liked each other a lot less, they got to respect each other by this point. And so I think that that's sort of what you saw there. I want to read this quote from Brandon Moreno uh, after the fight where he was talking about this, this whole thing. He says, quote, I was ready to take the mic like, let's go, motherfucker. Let's go for the fourth one. But everything I said was real. My other daughter, Madison, now she is eight years old. She understands everything or not, but she will understand. I knew I had the opportunity to be a better example for her. I don't want her to see dad doing stupid things on television. You're just like, God, damn. you know what? First of all, that is somebody who knows what it's like to raise an eight year old. She understands everything or she, or maybe not at all, but maybe like a, a very, like searing, very in-depth perception of this stuff. And you are sort of aware like, oh, okay, they're paying attention. I, I, I need to set some kind of example here. And for him to be able to talk about it like that, like while we're both standing here with our belts, trying to be the tough guys, like I, I appreciate it. Man. Like It also, it just seems like it sort of drives home a little bit of the ridiculousness of the interim stuff, doesn't it? Because if you didn't really know You'd be like, wait a minute. So the other guy, he's not uh, like stranded on a island in the South Pacific somewhere. He's not on a research vessel. He's not laid up in the hospital. He's here. He has a belt. He's got a belt and a, just a resplendent outfit. Yeah, he like, can climb. He's well enough to climb up into the cage. Looks looks pretty healthy, hardy. And what are we doing? Why do we have two belts out there? I, and it just seems like, okay. We, I don't know if we need that, if we need that trinket to understand that these are the two best guys in the division and the, we're probably going to do it again, brother. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'll say this, though. It's a fun rivalry. And, it is. Uh, Flyweight needs a fun rivalry, man. I feel like Davis and Figueredo and Brandon Moreno 
at the top of the 125 pound class is is an entertaining fun rivalry in a division that for those who choose to pay attention to it is actually pretty entertaining right now and uh, more power to them it's one of the few instances where i will be excited to watch these guys fight for a fourth time and so like uh, I think that's good. I think that's good for the men's 125 pound division. And I'm interested to see these guys. I hope they really do it uh, before the end of the year. Cause then we could get the interim title stuff cleared off the table. And uh, maybe we'd be ready for, for somebody like Pantoja, who we've got a question about uh, uh, coming up here in a few minutes. Let's uh, we got a couple here about Derek Lewis, boneyard Ben, who I assume is not you uh, wrote to us to say Derek Lewis passed the what the fuck test but the stoppage looked clean when you fall face first like that after getting bombed on you can't complain right and I agree with this I agree with it in theory and in this instance I did feel like the stoppage was like a hair early uh Derek Lewis taking them big shots from Sergey Pavlovich Dan Mergliata steps in, stops the fight. 55 seconds into the first round, Pavlovich wins by first round TKO. Derek Lewis was indeed getting bombed on. He did indeed fall down on his face, which is the kind of thing you can't do in a mixed martial arts fight if you are then going to complain about the stoppage. But this did seem like one of those cases where he was going to pop right back up. He was going to pop back up, and these two big fellas were going to keep throwing heavy leather at their faces until somebody fell down. And you know what? It was probably 60-40 that Sergey Pavlovich was still going to win. But with those with those big ham hocks, everybody's slanging around in there. Anything can happen. Yeah. And the more punches he landed, the more the ticker for the percentage of likelihood that Sergey Pavlovich was going to win probably keeps climbing higher and higher until he actually does. But like the the pity is to stop a heavyweight slugfest in that fashion, where for all we know, Derek Lewis was about to pop up and land a big old bomb that knocked the other guy out cold. Yeah, but. When you see it from the referee's perspective, what he's watching are a couple heavyweights, big meaty men slapping meat, yep. throwing those things. He yep. sees Derek Lewis eating some shots, backing up, backing up, backing up, being punched, and then boom, goes face down. And that's when he makes the decision. And it's a reasonable decision in that moment. It's only Derek Lewis's ability to pop right back up that makes us question it. And he doesn't know when he steps in that Derek Lewis is capable of doing that. He's going. I mean, you could argue... He could have waited another couple seconds to, just to see if that was going to happen. And yet, don't you think that sometimes in a lot of these situations, the thing that allows you to pop right back up and look like you are okay is that the ref stopped the other guy from hitting you? <laughs> like, that's how you're able to do that, is that the ref got in there. His intervention is what allowed you to then get up and act like you were totally fine. And when if he had not stepped in, you might still be down there getting hammer-fisted. And I, I just think that it's such a hard job that in instances like this, where we can look at it and be like, I can see how a reasonable person would have thought this was the moment to stop the fight that Derek Lewis has done. And especially heavyweights, you let it go one extra punch too long. And for one thing, we're going to be making memes about you. But another thing, the guy's life might be changed by any one of those blows. And all those factors together, I can see why you went, okay. Stop it now. And we could step back afterwards and be like, with the full benefit of hindsight and everything that happened afterwards, we think you should have waited an extra one and a half to two seconds. Yeah. But those aren't the stoppages we should get mad about because that's completely reasonable. It's the ones yeah. where somebody really fucks it up that, that we can get mad in either yeah. direction. 
No, I agree with that. And obviously fighter safety is the reason that the referees are out there. And this, in this case, I believe Dan Mergliata acted appropriately. Um, also like, man, just from a human perspective, I, you probably can't simulate how ch- emotionally charged and jumpy it makes you to be in there when you got two dudes that big hitting each other that hard. Like yeah. that'll make you, that'll probably make you stop the fight. If that's, if you're the guy who's supposed to stop it, that'll probably make you stop the fight just to be in there with those heavyweights. In this instance, I would have liked to see just like just one more second, just one more, but I get it. I'm not, I don't want to criticize Dan Mergliata for this one too much because those guys have hard jobs, man. We yeah. say it all the time. Uh, this next question came to us from your fa- your favorite refrigerator magnet. Okay. Who writes, it seems as if the scrolls foretold of this Derek Lewis decline with the L to Sergey Pavlovich. This is now three straight KO losses in his last three fights in Texas against three different rising young international prospects. How about that for a three, six mafia? But seriously, he is no longer, is he no longer a serious contender? P.S. I thought the stoppage was fair. Now we're, we're, we're spinning, we're spinning yarns a little bit here to say, uh, three straight KO losses during fights in Texas against international prospects. Because we do, in the fairness to Derek Lewis, need to point out he did mix in a first-round KO over Chris Dacus during that run. He won uh, against Chris Dacus in December. That was They were the main event of a fight night in Las Vegas at the Apex. But he has lost three straight fights in Texas against Sergey Pavlovich, Tai Tuivasa, and Cyril Gaon uh, in that reverse order. Uh, at this point, man, I don't even know losing a Cyril Gaon and Tai Tuivasa is, is anything to hang your head over since yeah. those guys are about to do it for maybe an interim belt for all we know. Uh, this Sergey Pavlovich one, I, again, with the stoppage and it's just kind of a wild fight seemed like a, it could, anybody could have won or lost this fight, but I do agree that there's probably something to the notion that at 37 years old and having had like an abortive retirement already in this sport, uh, Maybe Derek Lewis in any other division could be counted out from being a contender. But here we are at heavyweight where we all know Derek Lewis gets a, a couple few wins, strings together yeah. a couple few wins. All of a sudden he's back knocking on the door. He's always going to be a fun, marketable guy that the UFC can call if they need somebody to step in anywhere, anytime, any place and fight somebody. So I don't necessarily know that the book is closed on Derek Lewis. If the question is, have we seen the best of Derek Lewis, the top of the Derek Lewis charts the apex of the Derek Lewis up to this point, probably. Yeah. Just, just probably. Yeah. But like we said last time when we were talking about where Derek Lewis stands, even before this fight, he's been in these kind of situations before where he loses a couple and we start to go, well, okay, Derek Lewis was a flash in the pan, whatever. And then he knocks out one or two people and we go, oh yeah, fuck yeah, Derek Lewis. Let's get excited about him all over again. Plus he's always going to be Derek Lewis. He's a fun yeah. guy to have around. He has a yeah. fun fighting style. He, he can always, he's always a threat to knock somebody out. Uh, and he's just a dynamic personality. We're going to continue caring about Derek Lewis, even if he loses one here or there. You know, Here is one from the Corgi King where he asks, is Derek Lewis the perfect candidate for BKFC? He has said on numerous occasions that his only motivation for fighting is making money for his family. He also seems to hate most aspects of MMA training. BKFC would likely pay him a pretty penny to headline one of their cards, and he would get to the do the Derek Lewis thing where he puts guys to sleep with one punch. Could we somehow wish into existence a Derek Lewis versus Platinum Mike Perry fight? Oh, come on. Please you ought to be brought up on charges, Corky King. For yeah, only, such a only thing. in international waters could Jenny. we have Mike Perry 
fight uh, Derek Lewis. Well, can you um, imagine Derek Lewis versus Ben Rothwell and BKFC? It's, would watch. Hey, it seems terrifyingly plausible for one yeah. thing that yeah. like that they could that that fight could be made at some point. I mean, we we talk sometimes about is the UFC still in the business of paying up to keep people. Uh, because it knows that the brand is the thing that it's selling. It doesn't care about any individual fighter. And yet, I have to think that, go, well, Derek Lewis is a good guy to have on the roster. Still. You know? Even if he loses one. You can put Derek Lewis on the card, and people know him. They care about him. You can put him up there in interviews, and he's going to find a way to be entertaining. You give him the, you you let him go on the free agency market, let BKFC pick him up. That's a gift. That is a goddamn gift to them. They would love to snatch up a guy like Derek Lewis. Can you imagine the sound bites? Derek Lewis was sitting there in a, a media day before a BKFC fight talking about how crazy this shit is. How absolutely fucking ridiculous it is that he's about to go out there and participate in a bare knuckle boxing match and all you sickos are going to watch. Oh, man. It, like, I don't even want to talk about it because I'm afraid of making it into a reality just, just by whispering it out into the world, you know? Yeah, I think I was just going to say the the more pertinent question might be whether the UFC would let Derek Lewis get away, whether the UFC would let Derek Lewis go to BKFC. I don't know what the status of Derek Lewis's UFC contract is or uh, when he might be a free agent or how many fights he has left on it. Uh, he gets paid, uh, you know, he's he's a middle class heavyweight, I bet, gets gets paid a decent amount of money uh, to, to keep coming in there and fighting. But I don't think that he has quite reached to the point where he would be in this class of fighters that the UFC sees as too old and getting paid too much money, right? He still is, is uh, fun enough and likable enough that he probably has some value for the UFC. So I think the real question is whether or not the UFC would let Derek Lewis coast off into free agency where he could then, you know, go fight Ben Rothwell and BKFC, which is a, a terrifying thought to even consider. Yep. All right. Here's one that I know you're going to like, Ben. With the warmest regards from our pal from Oklahoma, the Jesse White Deer. He writes, So your pal from Oklahoma took an extended break from this bonkers worlds of human fisticuffs to lay a few I ain't saying who. I don't know what that means. Upon my return, I get cozy just in time to watch that pretty motherfucker Drew Dober beat up the other other <laughs> Raphael on Saturday. I mean, he's going to take my girl at the bar, pop in, beat the business out of a dude and glide out of here. I can't be mad with a mug like that. Who would? So please elaborate. What is the dangest deal? My mainest men. Uh, so we talked about this a little bit earlier. Drew Dober, lightweight fight on the preliminary card. Raphael Alves, third round body shot TKO. Uh, where Drew Dober hits him with kind of like, I think it was a straight left hand to the body. And uh, Rafael Alves immediately just like has to take a rest. He immediately just falls down on his face. Like he just remembered that he hasn't slept in days. And that's essentially the end of the fight. Uh, I know you love you some Drew Dober, Ben folks. What'd you think about this one? I mean, obviously I appreciate that Drew Dober is the handsomest man in MMA, but also can we say that Drew Dober skill wise is kind of underappreciated? He's good. He is a good fighter. I think that anytime you have a guy where it seems like he's a little too short for some divisions, he's the the weight cut I know is tough on him that he he has said before he can't take short notice fights, but it also feels like he can't 
go up a weight class because he'll just be too short to deal with some of those guys. He's got some, like, physical things that he has to, to deal with. But as far as, like, overall skills, athleticism, and fight IQ, he's pretty good. He's That's a really smart ability where he's going to back you up against the fence, and then when he knows you can't go anywhere, then he's going to commit to the body work. And he like he's very quietly just racking up uh, almost a record-breaking number of like knockouts and, and wins and stuff as lightweight. That guy has just been like quietly good for a long time. Are you trying to tell me right now that you think uh, Drew Dober is more than just a pretty face? I mean, he is undeniably a pretty face. That part is not even worth talking about. I mean, if you follow the man's Instagram, you know what I'm talking about. He... He doesn't seem to be able to find a pair of pants that fit. Uh, Drew Dober and I have different ideas about what makes a pair of pants fit. But you know what? I can't be mad at it when you look that good in them. And yeah, uh, and also... It's the same tailor as Conor McGregor, from what I can tell. Also, I mean, he... You look at that man's legs. Look at the man's calves. It, you, you can't just be buying shit off the rack if you're yeah, Drew Dober. athletic fit. That's what Drew Dober needs. He needs to find that athletic fit. Uh, you know Can we what? take this it out in the good... calves a little bit? Can we just let it out there? This is a good fight to make this point around because this was a fight where Drew Dober had some adversity early on. First round didn't necessarily go his way. And then he starts, he sort of comes back uh, second and third. He starts working that body a bunch, kind of wears Rafael Alves out and eventually puts him away with one of those body shots. So this is like a... a uh, a tough and uh, hard-nosed and smart performance from Drew Dober. So I think this is a particularly good fight to make that case around. And oh, by the way, the man is 8-3 and three in his last 11 fights. He lost to Brad Riddell at UFC 263 last June. But the other two losses in that stretch are Benil Dariush and Islam Mahachev. Yep. And that's going all the way back to 2016 when he lost to uh, Oliver Abion Marcier back then. Uh, but those are our respectable losses, man, uh, over that course for Drew Dober. And in, in any other division, he would probably be making a little bit more noise. But it's just that, like we talk about a lot, the lightweight division, uh, you got to be so good to even to, to even crack into the the uh, the realm of the title contender. And especially right now when you got this backlog at the top where we don't really have a champion and we're going to fight. Uh, in Abu Dhabi, Islam Mahachev and, and Chucky Olives to see who will have the belt and then what's Conor McGregor going to do and where does Dustin Poirier fit in and all these other guys. So for it's, it's tough for a guy like Drew Dober to crack into that into that category, into that group. But you're right. He has been quietly very, very good in a very, very uh, competitive division for a long period of time. I think you got to give him credit for that. Well, you also got to appreciate him while you can. It's only a matter of time until this man goes off to decide it's easier to make a living uh, selling hair gel, uh, endorsing shirts that only button up halfway, or like, you know, modeling sunglasses or something. It's only a matter of time, I'm telling you. Next question this week comes to us from Chili Willie Reverend Gaskin, who okay. writes. It's about damn time we start respecting Alexander Pantoja and his ground game. Back-to-back -back subs as well as win over guys like Brandon Moreno, Royval, uh, and Manuel Kopp. Is he and should he be next at 125 pounds? This was, uh, this was crazy, this fight. The uh, Alexander Pantoja-Alex Perez fight. They both won, or Pantoja won a performance of the night bonus. But this was one where he just kind of came out guns blazing said before the fight he needed to make a statement and then went out and fought like it just essentially took it to Perez from the opening bell 
in a wild exchange of punches, ends up climbing up on his back and uh, and choking him out. So this is this is a uh, a terrific win for Pantoja, who now like he, you know, as soon as we get done settling the business at the top of the flyweight division, this is one of the reasons why I said flyweight is kind of a fun division right now, and it deserves to have uh, a Davidson Figueredo Brandon Moreno style uh, feud at the top of it because we saw. Kai Kara France go out there against Brandon Moreno this weekend. Alexander Pantoja came into the weekend ranked number four. Oscar Oskarov is right above him. But uh, if you told me that the winner of the Brandon Moreno, Davidson Figueredo fourth fight, assuming that we get one, assuming that something definitive happens in that fight and we don't just have to do an endless series of bouts between these two guys, if they were going to fight Pantoja, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of tricky, right? That because, uh, Pantoja's last loss is to Askar Askarov, but then Askar Askarov lost to Kai Kara France, like in the spring. And so, like, we've all kind of taken turns dropping one here or there. And, and yet, it seems like another division where you could pick a name out of a hat. You got so many good fighters, and you could just pick somebody from the top five, and you're going to get a pretty good title fight out of it. Like, this one I thought was really impressive because he goes for that that takedown kind of but he clearly it seems like he is just using it he's not really trying to get the initial takedown he's trying to get the takedown to create a scramble so that he can climb on your back like he's hoping that you will turn that way and try to escape the scramble because that's the thing that's going to create the opening that he needs and that's super smart but also you got to be really good like you got to have that as part of your game and know that you are a finisher from the back as soon as you can get on there and especially if you can get on your your back that early in a fight like man can you imagine you're like a minute in minute and a half in uh against a guy like that and he's on your back you're not really nobody's really sweaty yet nobody's arms are blown out yet uh they're still like three and a half minutes to go in the round and he's on your back cranking on your neck with his forearm across your face and you're just going fuck this is like the worst case scenario. There's a, there's a lot of time and to to get through with that guy just glued to you. That's it's a great game plan, um, and it's also just like great execution of it. Yeah, uh, a lot of situations that I would not want to find myself in. But a guy like Pantoja on my back, squeezing my face, is one of them. Yep. That is one of the situations that I would not want to find myself in to make things even a little bit more interesting. Brandon Moreno, your current interim champion has a, a split draw with Oscar Oscarov and a loss to Alexander Pantoja, albeit way back in 2018. So probably not the current version of Brandon Moreno, but uh, fun stuff. Like I said, fun stuff happening down there at, uh, at flyweight right now. Uh, we got to turn back a little bit here to, UFC London, we got this listener mail from Tim Clifton, who wrote, I watched the singing and dancing man versus Curtis fight. After reading about the fight on the usual MMA sites, Curtis's frustration seemed to be around Jack Hermanson not standing still so he could put his hands on him. Hey, man, I get it. Uh, I thought Jack the Joker fought a great fight with a short notice opponent. Do you think his apologies in the post fight interview were warranted this of course jack hermanson against the short notice replacement chris curtis in the co-main of the ufc london card which ended up sort of functioning as the main event i guess you could say after tom aspinall suffered that knee injury just 15 seconds into the main event against curtis blades but uh you know this wasn't the kind of performance i guess jack hermanson had planned for himself he ended up getting the win but you could tell he wanted to do a little bit more do it a little bit differently and so he's holding himself to a high standard 
I suppose. And so it's, yeah. I don't, he's, if he wants to come out and apologize, that's his business. Well, there's two aspects to it, right? Because somebody like Chris Curtis getting mad at the end of the fight because the guy would not stand still and let you punch him in the face. That, I think, is bullshit. Like, that's on you, man. Like, find a way to get to the guy. If he is managing to beat you without doing what you would like him to do, then like that's... That's just how you're supposed to go about this stuff. That's a smart game plan on his part. Up to you to figure out what to do about it. It doesn't work to just be like, get, I'm going to get mad at you for having a smarter game plan than me. But the thing he said afterwards where he, he said his coach told him before we walked out, like, hey, you're not going to go out there and entertain these people tonight. You're going to go out there and be smart and we're going to get the win. And that tells me that he kind of knew what he was, the bargain that he was entering into. And... I can't blame anybody for that, especially when winning is what half your money depends on. And it's what the, you know, your next contract might depend on is what people are going to hold against you. If you're trying to ask for some bigger fight next they're going to look and be like, did you win the last one? We place all that importance on it. And so we can't then turn around and be like, but the smartest path to victory for you was not that fun for us. I mean, okay. He, there can be one like that every every now and then. It's not like he has a long history of doing that. So, fine. You know, he, he was dealing with some stuff in that fight. It's, it got switched up on him. Uh, kind of a tough opponent switch up. He played it smart. He got his money. You know, he didn't, he didn't owe us an apology after that. But if he wants to issue one, I feel like that is a little bit like, okay, he understands. He understands the... the the deal he struck here in order to get that win bonus. And he wants you to know that, uh, you know, he'll, he'll try to do better next time. I, I can appreciate that. We got numerous questions about Patty Pimblett around his uh, second round submission win over Jordan Levitt at this same UFC London card. I will start with this one from Yanni Samuel Siegel, who wrote, Last November, I lost my 19-year-old son, Noah, who died by suicide while serving in the army in South Korea. While day-to-day life has to go on, it was and remains devastating. Uh, Watching Patty's post-fight speech was an unexpected trigger for me as I found myself weeping on the couch while watching the UFC broadcast. I was incredibly appreciative of his message and his willingness to be vulnerable in this often aggressively macho bubble of ours, and if his message can have even a small impact to break the stigma, it will be a very good thing. On a side note, I'm a $5 patron and virtually hanging out with you guys a few times each week has been a lifeline through this time of grief. I couldn't make it this summer to Vegas, but I'll see you guys for the 15th anniversary gathering. Uh, so first of all, we just want to send our condolences, obviously, out to yeah. to Yanni. That's terrible as a couple of guys who have a bunch of children ourselves. I can't can't imagine the pain and suffering of, of losing a child at all or losing a child uh, in that manner would just be would be tough, man. So our, uh, our thoughts definitely out with Yanni. Uh, and this thing with Patty Pimblett, I, I, I do think you got to give him positive credit for when he says this kind yeah. of positive stuff. He gets on the mic after this win. He talks about how he just found out he had a friend uh, who had died by suicide, I think, earlier that week, right? Said he got yeah. woken up in the middle of the night and just found out about it. So, uh, you know, anything to help raise awareness around mental health especially in this particular subculture of society and telling particularly men that it's okay to uh that you don't feel good it's okay to admit that it's okay to be sad and it's okay you know to reach out and get help for that kind of stuff is a a great service and we have criticized patty pimblett in the past when he has said uh objectionable things about immigrants and and otherwise 
but I think you got to give him credit when he says something good and right. And he did that this time. And so, you know, kudos to Patty Pimblett for that. Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, I do think that it's especially meaningful and there's that if there's people, if there's a lot of people who still need to hear this stuff uh, over and over again to be reminded of this stuff. A lot of them are watching MMA. You know? Yeah. That a lot that that's where the message should be directed, and so to hear somebody like Patty Pimlet, I think that that probably can make a difference for some people. And we were just talking about the thing right with Darren Till, who was supposed to fight on this card, talking about uh, being kind of in a bad place mentally after having to deal with injuries and pulling out of fights, and he did the thing where he said like, "Oh, you know, I'm not one of these guys who talks about like mental health a lot and stuff." And it's like, but don't you think maybe that it would help? If you did, I mean, you're kind of doing it right now by yeah. like he was doing a sort of a all due respect kind of thing because he then went on to talk about like how his mental health was doing and how it wasn't doing great. Um, and Patty Pimblett, I think like that's somebody where a lot of the people who do need to hear that message and are watching MMA are the, also watching it and being like, Patty the baddie, hell yeah, I love this dude. And then when he says it, then maybe they, they can take it a little more seriously and maybe they can hear it more than, you know. So, some mark ass busters like you and me say it you know what i mean next question this week comes to us from mike from london england and that will become apparent as i read this question. okay <laughs> how do you think patty versus connor at lightweight would pan out if the ufc could book a stadium in liverpool or ireland they would be guaranteed to sell out ire versus england if connor can knock him out in round if connor cannot knock him out in round one I think Patty would catch him in a submission in rounds two or three. Please discuss. Now, Patty Pimblett, the 27-year-old UFC upstart, just three fights into his UFC career, but he's 19-3 and three overall as a professional. I don't know if this... See, my gut reaction is that I don't know if this is a fight Conor McGregor would be interested in or would take. But then you start talking about, oh, big thing in... in England or Ireland, maybe you sell out a stadium. I don't know, man. You start you start talking about the the marketability of the thing, and I start thinking, maybe. Yeah. Doesn't it feel though that any conversation right now about who Conor McGregor should fight is just fantasy matchmaking? That well, yeah, yes. So we're trying to say we're above that because we're not. <laughs> we just fifteen minutes ago we fantasy match made Derek Lewis and Ben Rothwell and BKFC. No, no, we didn't. To be very clear about that, we did not. We 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 talked about it and then we regretted it. We regretted waking those <laughs> those evil spirits. Uh, this one, I mean, I could definitely this argument like, hey, you put them in a stadium in Liverpool, or whatever, you know, and it's a huge one. Like, I, I can't argue with that. It'd be a little surreal to watch Patty Pimlet go from a win over Jordan Levitt to a stadium mega fight with Conor McGregor that quickly. Plus, I don't know what his the state of his contract is right now, but you know, he's not a champion. He's not getting points on the pay per view. He could very easily be in like in a huge ass fight, something like that that it, that brings in thousands of fans, millions of dollars for the UFC, and make like forty five grand to do it. <laughs> It'd be yeah. something ridiculous, you know. Uh, but I would think Conor McGregor, you know, he sometimes seems like he is living in an alternate reality, but he's not dumb. I think he would see that there is real risk in a fight like that for him. Uh, for those exact reasons that the guy does like Patty Pimblett actually looked pretty good in this fight. Honestly, yeah. like he was getting out wrestled early on, but that, that move to take the back trap, the arm and stick the choke there in round two, that was, that was pretty good. And it's like, 
Conor McGregor going to come out there doing the Conor McGregor stuff, trying to throw that left hand. And it's true. If you don't catch him, if you have to go to another round with him, uh, and if the guy can get his hands on you and jump on your back, that's exactly the kind of fight Conor McGregor could fuck around and lose real easy. And I think that he is sort of just out there big game hunting one at a time right now and is not thinking about something like Patty Pimlet, at least at least not for a while until Patty Pimlet makes a little bit more of a case for that. Yeah, this seems to me like it would have to be almost like Conor McGregor's last fight or something. Like it would have to be a passing of the torch. Conor McGregor obviously wouldn't think of it that way, but like it would would have to be like kind of that stage of Conor's career, I think, for for it to make sense for him. Uh, Because otherwise he's just doing it because it would be a spectacle overseas. And maybe that would be something that he is interested in. Uh, but for the last couple of years, and, and as he continues to make noise about his return, which obviously we, we don't know when or where that will be, but like, it does seem like he is more on the, on the notion of targeting a champion or targeting someone that he has history with, like Dustin Poirier, another top contender to fight Patty Pimblett would, it would be either like a passing of the torch moment or just a, a let's get this money moment. And not that he's not above that because he obviously is also allegedly talking to Floyd Mayweather about another fight. But uh, I don't know. It just seems like that would be kind of a weird matchup for Connor, kind yeah. of outside the box of what I would expect. Yeah. All right. We got this one from Gambit from X-Men. Okay. So just, just so you're not confused that we would get it from any other Gambit. Yeah. Uh, Gambit down writes, at the bowling alley. Right. Can we agree enough of recognizing fighters by their nicknames until they have earned it? I refuse to call another man Blood Diamond until he can stop a takedown. <laughs> Now you know I admit, hundred percent agree, hundred percent. I admit, I was in a brewery in Sheridan, Wyoming, after having driven for six hours that day from Denver, and was trying to feed my children, and they were ornery, and they were uh, in a terrible state. And then I look up at the uh, at the television, and uh, you know they're doing the thing on ESPN where like the left half of the screen is showing matchups from the upcoming fight card. And it just struck me how odd it was to be like one half of the screen is like, I don't know, the WNBA or something where people are doing essentially normal stuff. And then the other (laughs) half of the screen, somebody called blood diamond is going to fight on Saturday. And I'm thinking to myself, what are all the normal people of the world thinking as they sit here watching ESPN to get their WNBA highlights find out how the sparks are doing or whatever. And their other half of the screen, a fella by the name of blood diamond is about to engage in some human cockfighting on Saturday night. My take on it is I'm a grown ass man, dog. <laughs> you know, you can't be, that's out, it. That's the take. That's you, the whole take. out here. Like, okay. And next up we have blood diamond. And I go, I'm sorry. What? That's not, it's not what his mama called him. His mama did not name him blood diamond. What's his name? Tell me his goddamn name. Plus, I totally agree. You can get to a point in this sport where you are the nickname, where you are Shogun, you know? And damn it, you earned that. And so when you got some guy who's three and two as a professional and we're we're supposed to call him Blood Diamond, that's it. Not even just like Mike Blood Diamond. You know, we're like, we're not even throwing out the rest of the name. We're just supposed to be saying Blood Diamond. It's like, I don't know that he has earned that. 
I think you are you were you diminish the other people who have earned it. You're just like, okay, you're you're blood diamond now. Okay, how about you? What Coco? Okay, fine. You could be Coco. You know, like, come on, man. It, that has to be something where it means something to us because like you were Mauricio Hua, but then you just became Shogun over time yeah. in our minds. Yeah. Grown ass. Yeah, man. it's like we're a hop, skip, and a jump away from like Vince McMahon, WWE creative where everybody has to just have one name right yeah. or you might you might start out having two names but then in two weeks the they change it so you just have one name just gonna be a one name guy from now on next question this week comes to us from riva sevender who i believe is a star wars character okay uh she writes last week a ter- tyrannical mma promoter not named dana white stopped a fight in his promotion all because it was a little too boring for his liking and then there's the Contender Series, where Dana goes on a 15-minute ramp lambasting fighters for not changing their fighting style to fit his ESPN Plus show. Isn't there a happy medium? Why not just do open scoring? And Victor recently held an event in another state where they, too, implemented this new rule. Isn't that a more professional way of doing things, or am I just swinging at thin air here? Uh, do you see this? It oh, happened overseas. I yeah. believe this was one of those uh, ubiquitous Russian fight organizations where the promoter storms in and stops the fight. Yeah. Uh, the kind the I only part, know about because of Grubaka Hitman. Right. The best part was that somebody asked Dana White about it, right? And Dana yes. White's response was sort of like, well, that's really unprofessional, but also kind of a badass move. Like you could tell Dana White halfway respected this other promoter for I mean, getting in there and stopping a fight because he didn't like how it was going. Well, uh, Dana White has, in his own way, at times, walked up to the line of doing that when, you know, we're at, like, an event in Singapore and a judge is fucking up and he's like, you know what, tell that judge to go grab a seat in Section E and, like, he can watch the rest of the fights from there or, uh, you know, basically just bullying a ref until he gets out of the game. Shit like that. Like, that's Dana White's version of doing it. And you could tell that Dana White has definitely, like, fantasized about, like, sitting there and being like, I should just pull the plug on this fucker. I should just yeah. get in here between round two and three and be like, you know what? This one's trash. Throw it, pull, pull it. We're, we're, we're done here. We, we've seen all we need to see. So I'm sure that there's a part of him that does envy it. Um, the stuff about him getting mad at like the contender series guys, I doesn't it seem like eventually, and maybe we're already at that point, but eventually you're going to get to the point where like the reason these guys are on the contender series and not already signed somewhere else is because they're not ready. And, you've already found all the guys who are ready between you and Bellator and like a few of the other promotions, like the people who are ready and can be on there fighting on TV and uh, proven that they're ready to go to the UFC and compete at that level have already done it. And the, you are just feeding the, the content monster and you've, you've hit the bottom of the barrel. Like mathematically it has to happen at some point, right? That it, the, the well of talent can't necessarily continue to feed at that rate forever like eventually you are going to run because point where it's like no no you got all the guys that are ready for now you you need more guys you need more time for those guys to develop and especially with uh, in mma the regional scene has taken a huge hit in the last few years it's just not there for a lot of people to develop the same way it was 10 years ago and so it makes sense that sometimes you find yourself and you're like you're getting mad being like i don't understand like these it seems like these guys aren't aren't at the level they're supposed to be at. Well, shit, man. Uh, how it, it can't be an infinite number of guys who are ready to do that shit, you know? Yeah, the, the guy that he most famously did it to on the Contender Series was Brennan Lochnane. Remember yeah. that? Like, he was one of these guys who was viewed as one of the more professional UFC-ready fighters to come up 
through the contender series. And then Dana White just like kind of out of spite decides not to sign the guy because he like took down his opponent in the last minute of the third round and won a unanimous decision. Like, and by the way, all Brendan Lochnane has done since then was go over to the PFL where I believe he is seven and one. Yeah. Six and one Brendan, Brendan Lochnane over there in the PFL. So like, it's just, you know, sometimes you miss out on a really good fighter. Sometimes it's not that they're not ready. It's just that, like they were so ready that they fought a smart fight and then you didn't take them. Now they're over in there, they're in the PFL stringing together wins. Yeah. Now, more specifically, I don't totally know if open scoring is the answer to, to boring fights or promoter uh, uh, meddling, but we have talked ourselves blue in the face on this show about open scoring. And I think we are both on the record saying it would be interesting to try it in a venue you know, obviously Invicta is trying it because they do events down there in Kansas City where you can have open scoring. And I haven't heard anyone say it's been the worst thing in the world. It seems like it's been fine. I don't even know that's had much of an effect. If it has, I haven't heard about it. But if you're going to try open scoring, the beauty of the UFC uh, machine right now is that you could try open scoring at the Contender Series if you wanted to. Like put it on these like slightly lower level fights to try it out for a little while to see if... Uh, to see if it, it would work or it was a disaster. Just try it out on the Contender Series, and then maybe Dana White won't have to cut those promos anymore. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Philip in Calgary, who writes, So I got around to watching the UFC 277 prelims today, and the commentator spent a surprising amount of time talking about what I'll call ref-initiated restarts. Taking it as far as to identify Jacob Montalvo as a ref known for not letting ground fighting go on too long if there isn't constant exciting action. During a fight, Montalvo was refing. It was almost like Anik, Cormier, and Rogan were impartial non-employees of the UFC. You know, like commentators for every major professional sport in the world. And now I'm wondering, what do you think about when a ref, what do you think about when a ref should step in and restart the action? You know, it is really weird to me how, I've talked to a few fighters in the past about this, not just about, you know, when a ref will step in there and restart the action, but a lot of fighters have or their their camps have put more time than you think into sort of studying referee tendencies especially because when they, they want to know or they'll have a couple in mind where they're like if they tell me this is the guy ref in the fight we're going to see if we can get it changed because they worry they they've identified a few people like maybe this person uh or i've heard them talk about like oh this one is too active and kind of inserting himself into the fight and talking and giving warnings when they don't they don't need to or, or trying to be too much a part of the action of the fight and that's not going to play for the style we want to fight here and stuff like this too where i've heard fighters say like okay this guy i think he doesn't let people work and i need if i can get you down if i get you a takedown and i get to half guard with three minutes left in the round that's what the whole thing my game plan is built around and if you're not going to let me do some stuff from there, then like you're basically taking away my best chance to win. And it's weird that that is still a thing. Like I think less so now, but like still a thing where we are up to individual referee discretion. And it can be wildly different from one yeah. ref to the next or from one night to the next. Yeah. And it's a thing that happens in other sports, though. You know, we talk about strike zones with various baseball referees and uh, how official or uh, teams of officials mostly in football will, will ref certain games differently and, and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a hard and fast opinion about uh, when the referee 
should step in to stop the action mo- or, or restart the action. Mostly I'm a stay the fuck out of there. Yeah. Kind of a guy as a purist, a person who's been watching the sport for a long time, but I also see, you know, instances where I think it should be done where just not much is happening down there. I feel like it's like pornography that I know it when I see it. When when you when you get in there and and break them up, get them back, I know it when I see it. Yeah, that's a good one. And I'll uh, yell, right. stand them up. And that's how you'll we know will, you should stand them up. We will close it out with Devin Scott, who writes, So, friends, there was a moment in the UFC commentary where Joe Rogan said that he has seen someone get choked out with a rear ne- naked choke over their cheekbones. Is this some type of bullshit? Because it sounds like some nonsense you'd hear from a sensei at a strip mall martial arts club. Now, he's talking about the Pantoja fight here, I think. Because yeah. this is when Rogan says this, when he's on... Uh, He's on the back trying to apply the 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 rear naked choke and uh and he's got it over Perez's face, which again, uncomfortable. It's not where I want to be. And it's it's kind of a weird like Joe Rogan says you first thing he says is you could tap a guy out that way. And that makes it sound like what he's saying is that you could basically just get your face crunched so much that you would tap out from the pain. You have your jaw broken or whatever. But then, like, just as there is actually the stoppage in the fight. Rogan kind of circles back to it and says, like, you can you can choke a guy unconscious by having the the arm over the face. And it was kind of like in passing. Nobody commented on it. It was it was just kind of an awkwardly timed statement. Uh, But that is a thing that I have to admit I have not heard of before. And like, if it's possible, I'm not totally sure the physiology of it. Yeah, I don't understand how it would work. And I certainly pain, maybe pass out from the pain. Okay. I mean, I've never seen it, certainly. I I remember when uh, Demi and Maya squeezed the blood out of Rick Story's face. Yeah, uh, but I think he, he was over his chin there and squeezing so hard that you just saw the blood come right out of his nose because of the squeeze. So, like, I don't know. Maybe that is possible. Uh, it also feels like, you know, Joe Rogan will say some stuff sometimes. Yeah, he yeah. will. He's not necessarily doing like a, like, especially if you didn't have the guy right there with the laptop who can look stuff up and tell him if it's true or not. You know, we were just kind of winging it on commentary. So I don't know. I, I would say Mythbusters might need to take a look at this one. <laughs> you might say Joe Rogan's entire multi hundred million dollar career has been built on hashtag just saying stuff. It's kind and of I'm his whole thing. Not saying it can't happen, but I'm going to let's let's get Demi and Maya in one of those like Mythbusters laboratories or whatever they use for like Deadliest Warrior or something. And we'll just see. We'll see if it's possible. That's going to wrap it up this week for the co-main event podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Did you know we have a Patreon? You can go over to patreon.com slash co-main event co-main event. Jeez. Patreon.com slash co-main event is where you need to go. And check us out over there. We have three handy tiers of patronage. You might even say a patronage tier for every budget. We're over there all week with the extra content. We got the Wednesday live chat. Thursday's doing the damn thing. Friday power hour. The people have a lot of fun chopping it up on the official and exclusive CME Patreon Discord message board. Access to a ton of stuff we think you'll enjoy. Check us out over there. Patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, thanks for listening, everybody. We are done. We are through. We are out. What do you What do you think? Uh, what's, what should be the level where you can call a guy by his nickname? Because I feel like you know, you take a guy like Rampage Jackson, okay. who was eternally kind of known just as Rampage around MMA circles, 
and I feel like that was that he earned that. Like that was uh, that was perfectly uh, acceptable to call Quentin Jackson rampage all the time. But I agree, calling a guy Blood Diamond is a little weird. He's only a couple fights into his uh, his career. Yeah. Also, Rampage is a cool nickname, and his actual first name is Quentin, which is not a cool first name. So I don't yeah. begrudge a guy who doesn't want to go walking around as Quentin. You know, like maybe instead of having people call me Donald, I could have him call me Cowboy. That's a lot cooler. I'll put on a hat. I don't have to be Donald that. anymore.